Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, through to chapter 2, verse 5. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that is given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Um, so today is part two of a two-part message. So we're going to have a little recap. So a couple of weeks ago when we were last together, we encountered the secret, uh, the mystery of the ages, which is our hope of glory. Now, it's a mystery because it's, it hasn't been revealed to everyone. Not every person in the world understands it. Not everyone can grasp this. It, it's something that has only been revealed to the saints, uh, to Christians, to disciples of Jesus Christ. And this is the mystery. Our hope of glory is Christ in us. Uh, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, Christ isn't just somewhere near us. Christ is in us. He lives in us. And because he lives in us, we know that we will be raised from the dead. We know that we will participate in glory. This is something which is guaranteed. And if we ever find ourselves wondering, is it, is it true? Well, just remember that Christ is in you and remember everything that that means for you. And you'll, you'll realise that, yeah, this is guaranteed. And for many generations, men and women have striven to keep all of these different religious rules and regulations to try and somehow get themselves a little bit closer to the God in the hope that in some way they might attain glory. But this is the mystery that's now been revealed to disciples of Jesus, Christ in us. And Paul has been proclaiming it. He's been defending it. That's what he means when, when he says it's about warning because he's been warning about alternative messages and he's been teaching it. But he's also told us that, that there is a very real cost for him as he preaches this gospel truth. 
For this purpose, he tells us, he struggles and he toils. And to toil, well, yeah, we know what, what it means to toil. It means that there can be some long hours involved. Uh, but also when you preach the gospel, it can be some tough work involved as well. But the struggle that Paul has is a very real costly struggle indeed. Persecution and suffering. In verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Isn't that interesting? He, he's suffering for another church, for a church somewhere. And, and it's possible that he's never even met these people before. And he says, And in my flesh, I am feeling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, that's a peculiar statement. And we finished off last week by clearing the decks to be ready to build on this some more today. And we confirmed that Christ's death is 100% sufficient to save us from our sins. Right? So Paul is not saying that Christ's death is any way deficient. What he is saying is Christ continues to suffer today for the sake of his church. And the suffering of Christ today is through the suffering of his disciples, uh, particularly the suffering of those who suffer as they preach and teach the gospel truth as they serve Christ. And if you stick with me, uh, this is going to become clear as, as we unpack it a bit. Now, in verse 25, Paul describes himself as a servant. Uh, diakonos is the Greek word. Now, in our, in our Bible reading this morning, it was translated as minister. Uh, now, it's, it's, it's a bit unfortunate that, for that because that is what the word minister means. But when you think of a minister, what do you think of? Right? If you think of somebody who's a minister, generally we think of somebody who maybe they're pretty high up in the church, maybe they're, they're the ones who do the preaching and teaching, maybe they're the ones who are responsible for pastoral care. But, but the word minister actually means to serve, to serve. And that's what the Greek word diakonos means, is to serve. But what is Paul a servant of? And straight away, we would normally go, oh yeah, well, he's a servant of Christ. Because that, that's what we would expect, isn't it? Well, yes, he is a servant of Christ. But he actually says here that he's a servant of the church. And this is a very practical servant, the, the diaconos. Uh, and he serves the church as a steward. That means that, that something has been entrusted to him, right? To be a steward means someone entrusts something to you and you as a steward are to use that for the purposes that the person who entrusted it to you wants, wants it used for. And in this case, the thing that's been entrusted to Paul as a steward is the Word of God. You see, my role as a, as a preacher and a teacher here, it, it, it's not to make anything up. It's not for me to come up with some topic that I think is going to be fashionable and appealing and then to astound you all with my fabulous oratory ability or to bore you with my very poor communication skills, whichever happens to be the case. God has entrusted to us the word of God. And that's the job of the preacher. 
And I'm not to be creative. I'm not to make anything up. To serve God, we serve him by being stewards. And Paul leaves no doubt about this. To serve is to make the word of God fully known. And by doing this, the church benefits. And I give glory to God because we see this happening today in all sorts of places. We, it continually amazes me that we even see it happening with, with our own little church. Right? That Bible teaching coming out of this little place here in Bush Disciples is benefiting the Christian church, not just here, but across the state and across the nation. And that's not something that we as a church ever set out to do. But by simply being stewards of the word of God and by teaching the whole word of God, we don't change it. Uh, we don't miss out the bits that, that we find challenging. We don't miss out the bits that the world might not think are too appealing today. We just make the word of God fully known. And because of this, not just locally, but further afield, the church is growing because of it. Um, by the way, you guys don't get to hear all the good news stories. Um, I just want to let you know, just this week, uh, a, a couple who listen to our messages regularly um, sent me a text and just saying, thanks for, thanks for doing this. I just want to let you know we're still listening and we look forward to it. I suspect they might have sent the text because there was no message appeared on the, on the thing last week because we weren't here last week. Um, but uh, hello to Mark and Sue, by the way, if you're listening. But let's come back to Paul. By Paul making the word of God fully known, the wider church was benefiting, but Paul himself was suffering. He was actually locked up in prison while he was writing this letter. Why do you think he's in prison? Well, it's most probably because he's been unashamedly teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, which isn't always liked. But how is it that when a Christian suffers, it's Christ who suffers. Now, firstly, to be clear, I think we need to understand what sort of suffering we're talking about. Right? We're not talking about everyday suffering for whatever reason. So we're not talking about, okay, I've gotten old and I'm getting a bit of arthritis happening and, and I'm suffering because of it. We're not talking about that sort of suffering. We're not talking about the sort of suffering a person might feel if, if a husband's been nasty to his wife and she's left him and so he feels like he's suffering. We're not talking about that sort of suffering. Uh, we're not talking about the sort of suffering that somebody might have because they said something nasty to somebody and they got a punch in the nose. We're not talking about that sort of suffering. The suffering that we're talking about is suffering for the sake of the gospel. And when a disciple of Jesus suffers because they've preached the gospel, when a disciple of Jesus suffers because they hold true to the gospel or because they have rejected an untrue gospel and they've been uncompromising in the pure gospel of Jesus Christ, when a disciple of Jesus suffers for this reason, in some way, it's Christ himself who suffers. And Paul actually came to an understanding of this even before he became a Christian. Um, because at one time, Paul was a persecutor of Christians. Uh, he was zealous for the Lord, but he found that he was on the wrong side. As a good Jewish Pharisee, he was appalled at those Christians. And he was strutting out on his way to Damascus to arrest some more of those pesky Christians. 
and bring him back to Jerusalem so they could go on trial and, and, and possibly even be executed. And he would have been very happy with that. And while, on his, while he was on his way to Damascus, there on the road, he was blinded by a bright light. And Paul tells this story, and, it, and it, his conversion experience was an amazing thing for him. It's a story that he told over and over again. We can read it a few times in the book of Acts. But in Acts chapter 22, he says, And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Right? And Paul thought that he was persecuting Christians, the followers of Jesus. But what he didn't realize was while he was doing this, it was Christ who was suffering. You see, he's already told us that, that the hope of glory that we have is Christ in us. And if Christ is in you, when you suffer for the sake of the gospel, it is Christ in in you who suffers. When you suffer, know that you are not going through this suffering alone. It is Christ in you who suffers with you through the worst of it. And he also tells us that we are the body of Christ. And we know that when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. And so we know that when one part of the body suffers, the head of the body, which is Christ, suffers. This very day, there are Christians in this world who truly are suffering for Christ. There's Christians suffering in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in China, in Indonesia, in Turkey, and in many other places across the globe. We're even seeing Christians starting to suffer for the sake of the gospel in our own land. Who would have thought 20 years ago that Christians, even famous ones, could lose their jobs for sharing what's in the God's word or could be cancelled because people don't like what they say? And when they suffer, we suffer because we are all part of the body and Christ suffers because he's the head of the body and Christ is in his saints. And that's why every week here, now in our time of prayer, we, we pray for persecuted Christians. And we thank Open Doors for putting together a bit of a prayer list. They keep in contact with Christians who are being persecuted all over the world. And, um, and they share with us their prayer needs. And if you notice that when we pray, we, they don't ask to, for us to pray that, that they're going to be spared suffering. They ask to be strong during suffering. Now, having said that, I hope, I hope that's pretty much how the prayer request goes today. Otherwise, I'll look silly. And so Paul says, for this I toil, for this I struggle. But I think we need to be encouraged here. When we struggle, when we're being persecuted, we do not struggle alone. Verse 29 says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy. Whose energy? Christ's energy. Christ's power that he powerfully works within me. We're talking about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, Paul does put in every effort to proclaim, to teach, to warn. 
But if Paul was relying only on his own strength, it wouldn't get him very far. He would have burnt out in no time at all. And it's exactly the same for us. When we serve Christ in whatever capacity we serve him, when it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit, energy of Christ in us, God will do his very best work. God calls us to do what we cannot do in our own strength. We need all of his energy. Isaiah chapter 40, I love this. Um, he says, he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths grow faint sorry, even youth shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for Yahweh shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what the power of God does. Um, and, and, and there are many Christians today who have the feeling, I am so tired. And often... What we see is the first thing that, dro that drops off for them is being a servant of Jesus and being a servant of the church. But I believe that, that when we get tired, that's a time for us to serve and to serve fully because that's when we can struggle with all his energy that he powerfully works in us. Um, and I want to encourage everyone here today. We are all to be ministers of Christ, not just Paul. And to be a minister means to be a servant. And remember, to be a servant of Christ, Paul was saying, is to be a servant of the church. And as we struggle, yeah, you might feel tired. You might feel weary. The persecutions might come on. But we continue to serve Christ because the, we use and harness the power of Christ within us. And he powerfully does that work through us. Right up. So it's by the power, it's by the energy of God that Paul proclaims, that he warns and he teaches. But why is it so important for him that he make the word of God fully known? You know, um, many Christians are very content just to be given a bit of spiritual milk. Uh, she's right, Pastor, I don't, I don't need any more. Just keep it simple, will you, hey? We just need it simple. And when it comes to the Word of God, some people don't want to go any deeper than the kid's story. No offence, Andrew, great kid story, great kid story. But I remember even as a kid, I, I used to find this so wrong. Even as a kid, I would hear adults saying, you know what, I get more out of the kid's story than I get out of the sermon. Has anyone not ever heard someone say that? Roy's never heard someone say that. Really? <laughs> it's commonly said. And... Whenever I hear that, I immediately think, oh, okay, well, that's telling me two, one of two things. Either, either the minister's not preaching the whole word of God or uh, one of three things. You've got a truly amazing kid storyteller. Or the third thing, you need to love, start loving Christ with your mind and start get delving into his word and, and craving the full 
word of God message. Why is it so important to Paul to make the word of God fully known? Well, it gives us three reasons. Unity, to truly know Christ and know the truth about Christ. And thirdly, as a safeguard against deception. He wants the whole church to be knit together in love. He wants us to be encouraged. And how is the Christian church best encouraged? By being one. We don't get encouraged with church splits, do we? But we do get encouraged when, when a church comes together. Um, who's looking forward to next week? We're getting together and having a combined service with River Life. Is anyone looking forward to next week? I am. I am. This is, we get encouraged as the church comes together. But what does that look like? I talking to a chap a couple of weeks ago, and he expressed something that many people believe, that if Christians weren't so pedantic at getting it right, if we just accepted the un different understandings of the gospel, then all of the churches could be one and we'd all get on and we wouldn't have all the brokenness and division. And many people believe that. And that's something that the devil would love for us to believe. But the Apostle Paul wouldn't believe that for a minute. Paul is a servant of the one true gospel. And his hope and his prayer for the Christian church, even for those that he's never met, was for them to believe the one truth. For this he strove, for this he toiled, for this the energy of Christ in him was harnessed to proclaim, to teach, to warn, to correct, so that the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ would be heard, that it would be believed and that it would be embraced so that the church could truly be one. And this is an act of love. Reading from chapter 2 verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea. Now Laodicea pops up a few times in, in the New Testament. Um, it's, it's a neighbouring town to Colossae, who's, right? so he's writing to this church at Colossae, and um, it's a neighbouring town, it's only a few kilometres further down the Lycus Valley. And he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. When it comes to Christianity and when it comes to the gospel, many of us are sort of, it's hardwired into us that we want to avoid confrontation at all costs with, with other Christians. And, and so many people have that attitude, live and let live. You have your truth, I'll have my truth, and we'll respect each other for it and we'll just all get on. 
And that's their idea of love. But that's not love. And it's certainly not true unity. Love and unity are only found in shared truth. And anything else is counterfeit. See, if I love you as a Christian, what's my hope for you? Sadly, many preachers today are pretty much motivational speakers. And their aim is to motivate their audience and, and to help people to meet their potential by what the world would class as them being a success. You know what? As a preacher, I don't care if you're a success by worldly standards. I don't care at all. Um, I don't care if you're bottom in the class. I don't care if you've got the most menial job. I don't care if you can't get a job at all, right? Because some people are unemployed. But what, what are we after in life? And for me as a preacher, what am I trying to help you to achieve? The, the big house, the prestigious job, the nice car? What about even the big happy family? Or what about to become famous or to become a successful sports person or whatever? If I love you as a Christian, do you know what my hope for you is? I want to see you reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What about you? What are you after in life? What are you wanting to hear from church? What are you wanting to, to, to hear from the pulpit, if you like? You wanting to hear some motivational speak to motivate you to try and work harder or achieve more? become the top of your game? Is that what you're after? Or do you want to reach all the riches of the full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ? Motivation is sort of like a poor second compared to that, isn't it? And if as a preacher, if as a teacher, if as a servant of the gospel, I do not with every energy of Christ in me proclaim, teach, warn, correct. If I don't do that, I'm not loving you. And it's important to continue to proclaim, to continue to teach, to warn and to correct because Satan doesn't want you to know God's word that well because he knows that when you do know God's word that well, you will be strong and secure and unshifting in your faith. It's only by knowing the fullness of God's word that we can continue to stand strong. Verse 4 says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And sadly, that happens every day to Christians. Paul had a very real concern for this church because he'd seen it happen in other churches. And so he had this very real concern that maybe this church in Colossae might be led astray. He had a concern that their faith might shift from the firm foundation that it had begun on. Uh, the Greek word here is paralogazetai, which, which means to cheat, to deceive, to delude. 
And that's what false teachers do. They use words that to an untrained ear might sound like a reasonable argument. Um, now, even as I say that word, untrained, some people hearing this might take offence. Because, oh, what, you think you're better than us? You think you know better? Well, I know my Bible. Yeah, well, this is what Paul is teaching us here. We need to, to hear the teaching of the full word of God. And that's what Paul is doing. And it's important that we learn. Some people um, are teachable and some people are unteachable. And even for me as a preacher, if I am unteachable, if I can't learn from the word of God being preached by others, then I'm going to be a terrible preacher. I need to learn every day. Do you think I know it all? Of course I don't know it all. I listen to teachers as well. And we need to be teachable. And so they use words that to an untrained ear sound like a reasonable argument. What they do is they bend and they twist the scriptures to give it an air of godliness. And they use their clever, plausible sounding arguments to deceive. False teachers will often use words that appeal to the flesh and without godly correction, disciples of Jesus are in danger of being deluded and being led astray. And even as Paul writes these words, it, it appears to me that, that he's writing them as a warning for the future. Right? As I read this, it, it, as it stands, it seems that Paul has every indication that these saints in Colossae are actually still on track. Right? And he's actually warning them, don't go off track. Because even though he's not with them physically, he says in verse 5, for, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, we don't exactly know what, what this means. Um, we don't know if God revealed this to, to Paul in the spirit. Did in, in the spirit, did he actually go there and see that church in, in a vision? Um, or did God speak to him and tell him these things? Or was it that a spiritual brother had passed through there and had come and visited Paul in jail and given him a word? Hey, you know what? That, that church there in Colossae, it's going good. There's good order and they're firm in the faith in Christ. We don't know. But somehow the message had been given by God to Paul. And this is what makes him rejoice. Their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. And we need to understand that, that these two things are always a sign of spiritual maturity in a church. Good order and a firmness of faith. Now, sadly, often good order gets equated with, ah, traditionalism. You're just religious. You're just jumping through the hoops. No. Good order is the work of the Spirit. And that's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians. Where the Spirit of God is at work, there will always be order. A church will not be running amok with everybody off doing their own thing and hurting one another. And um, the second sign of spiritual maturity in a church 
is a common firmness of faith in Christ. Do you notice he didn't say, oh, I heard there's been lots of miracles happening there. Oh, I heard there's been lots of healings. Oh, I've heard you've got a really great band happening. He didn't say any of that. The things that appealed to Paul, the things that really encouraged him was that they were a church where there was good order and they had a firm faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's wrap it up. When, when I first started preaching, uh, my minister at the time taught me, is showing me how to do it better, and, and he taught me to always write a one-sentence summary of what the passage is about. And often that one, not always, but often that one-sentence summary will be pretty much the heading up on the screen. Um, and the sentence I wrote here for this message is, suffering for the ongoing faith of others. Paul suffered as he preached. He suffered as he warned and as he taught the true gospel. Paul would often suffer and be ridiculed for correcting and warning about delusions that, that were being presented in the form of plausible arguments. But he was willing to suffer for the sake of the ongoing faith of others. Um, in 2 Corinthians, he tells us a bit about some of this suffering. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, that's the Jews, danger from the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger in the sea, and then he even says, danger from false brothers, right? So that's people who claim to be Christians but, but were false. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in danger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Right now, that's quite a list, isn't it? But then to top it all off, and he says, and apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Wow. Do you understand why he writes the stuff that he does in the scriptures, in, that we now have in the scriptures, like of what he's written to this church in Colossae? He has daily anxiety. He's worried about them. He wants to know that they're going to continue on in the same way. Now, I've been challenged by this. Are we as a church today willing to suffer in the same way? Are we willing to suffer? as we teach, as we correct, as we warn, and as we defend the gospel against those who would present plausible-sounding alternate versions of the gospel? And I, I reckon the answer to this is, if we love the body of Christ, if we love other Christians, we will and we must. If we love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough that we want to see them standing strong in the faith and understanding the amazing mystery of Christ in us and understanding the, um, the amazing future that we have in glory with Christ, we will suffer. 
will suffer for the ongoing faith of our brothers and sisters in Christ as we proclaim, as we teach, as we warn, and as we correct because we love them. Let's pray. Lord, as we prayed last week, what a privilege it is to have this mystery revealed to us, your saints, Christ in us. Lord, help us to cherish this. And by your Holy Spirit, help us to understand the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge of Christ Jesus. Lord, give us a boldness that we would be willing to suffer for the ongoing faith of others, that we would be willing to warn, willing to correct and to teach as you enable us. Lord, give us good teaching, we pray, that we would not be deluded with plausible arguments, that we would stand strong, unshifting on the firm foundation of your gospel. And Lord, we pray for a unity as we unite with our brothers and sisters in Christ who stand on the one firm foundation. In Jesus' name, amen.